Stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. I truly believe that thoughts are the greatest vehicle to change. We do not care whether the cat is black or white, as long as it can catch mice. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. To those waiting with bated breath for that favorite media catchphrase, the U-turn, I have only one thing to say. You turn if you want to. The ladies not for turning. Victory is the beautiful, bright-colored flower. Transport is the stem without which it could never have blossomed. Is a quote by the British statesman, soldier and writer, Sir Winston Churchill. I thought this was an apt quote for our guest today, someone managing one of the largest rail freight transport businesses in Australia, having been in operation since 1855. Our guest today is Pacific Nationals Managing Director and Chief Executive Officer, Paul Scurra, who oversees over 3,000 employees in more than 70 locations on mainland Australia. Paul started his executive career as Chief Executive Officer at Queensland Rail before becoming Chief Marketing and Commercial Officer at Horizon. He was also Chief Executive Officer at DP World before becoming Chief Executive Officer at Virgin Australia. Paul has served on a range of boards including Gold Coast Suns Football Club, Australia Post, RPM Global and Australia Tourism Data Warehouse. Hello and welcome to another episode of No Limitations – a show where we speak to elite world-class performing men and women and unlock the secrets and influences that have shaped their destinies and then you can apply to your own life. For our first-time listeners from all over the world, please don't forget to follow on your preferred podcast platform and share with your friends and colleagues. And for our listeners in Mexico, United Arab Emirates and Singapore, a big hello. I am your host, Greg Robinson, Managing Partner of Blend & Partners, board and executive search firm. In this highly engaging discussion, Paul, who has worked at the most senior levels in rail, air and ports, asks us to look at the bigger picture and the opportunity presented for a far more cohesive and economic longer-term vision for Australia's transport, logistics and supply chain. As the largest island on the globe, we examine the need for a bipartisan and apolitical vision to support the growth agenda in both the domestic and international trading markets that could benefit all. We challenge the status quo, we gain insight into the engine room of the nation whilst learning of Paul's own personal journey, his philosophy on success and his touchstone operating mantra. We cover his time at the helm of Virgin Australia, its storied rivalry with Qantas, before exploring some of the darkest days through COVID and Paul's personal reflections on leadership through some of the toughest times in crisis management. Finally, we talk about freedom and what lies ahead for the future. So sit back and enjoy. A rising tide floats all boats. Paul, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Greg. It's a pleasure to be here. You've run some of the biggest companies in the country, which we'll cover off in a few minutes. 
but a lot of that's got to do with infrastructure. Where are we at as a nation in regards to long-term thinking and vision regarding the infrastructure spend and the return on that investment? That's a great question. Where are we at from a long-term vision point of view? I think we're lost. We're at the crossroads. And I think we are seeing some investment in some great infrastructure in our country. You know, people don't really know how much goes into planning for infrastructure till they see the shovel in the ground and the and the project being opened. Mm-hmm. But that was not necessarily the result of a wonderful vision. All the way back, we had Bradfield, who had this amazing plan that people could see playing out. That's right. What really occurred was that there was a an incentive put in place by the federal government for states to sell private assets, and then they'd get a discount on grants or a form of funding that saw them reinvest that into infrastructure. So you're seeing things like the metro, particularly in Sydney and all the level crossing removals in Melbourne and all of those sorts of things, which are really good to see. But I'm not sure they came out of long-term vision. And right now, I don't think we actually have one. I think we're a bit lost. So in terms of long-term vision, if I look at, we're living in what the largest island in the world where infrastructure has still got a long way to go in terms of, I guess, in your sector, rail. Uh, you've been the chief exec in the world of air and you know ports inside and out. But I'm looking from a terms of point of, of um, our capability to maximise what we're going to offer the world in terms of efficiency and return on everyone out there bending their back to produce the goods, to export, to get a return. Are we losing it? Are we maximising it? What, or what plan do you have you heard or is it just run by states? There's no real easy answer to that because I, I think from a national perspective, uh, we do suffer from the tyranny of distance. So we're a very large country yep. uh, for the geographic population that we have. Yep. Our populations are fairly spread out compared to others. Yeah, although, um, although very strong along the coastlines. Very strong along the East Coast. So yeah. in terms of national connecting infrastructure by land. You know, I think the road network has improved a lot. The rail network has not really had anywhere near the investment in it. And that's something that I'm very close to right now. And I don't think we make or have taken advantage of of the maritime opportunities either. But the reason I say that's not easy to answer is that for things like the key exports that make our budget tick, like iron ore and coal, because they are such financial propositions, and such good economic drivers, they have had the infrastructure investment and they are working really well. So if you look at what the Pilbara has, Rio yeah. Tinto, BHP, Fortescue, those guys have got really good fit-for-purpose, high-quality rail assets because they're worth the investment because of the payback. Did they pay for them themselves? They did. Yeah, they did. So they're closed shop. They're not government, but it's well worth their while to have it. Over here, uh, first of all, when I say over here on the east coast of Australia, you have the central Queensland coal network, which was built and invested by the Queensland government and then privatised in 2010. Yes. And has been invested in really well because of the economic benefit to the state of Queensland. And they're doing very well right now by the way, because of their royalties. Yeah, and of course, yes. Yeah, and then you've got the Hunter Valley coal export system, which is predominantly thermal or energy coal, and that's also really well built. So where the economic rationale is there and obvious, we have invested in really good quality rail infrastructure, 
but where there's more of a social, less direct benefit, we've been really poor at investing in rail and roads are getting better and better. But I still think that our connecting infrastructure between capital city to capital city needs to be improved dramatically. And is your business still scraping for every cent? Pretty much. So here's what I've discovered being in rail freight. So also having been the CEO of a passenger railway that also owned 8,000 kilometres of track that I sold access to uh, freight companies. Yep. What I've found is that when you talk, and I really wish the politicians would actually pay a little bit more attention to the detail of this. So when you go and make the point that rail has not had the investment in it here, like other uh, first world countries like Mm. Australia, Mm. you often get the rote response, oh yes, we're spending this much on metros in Sydney and we're spending this much on the suburban rail loop in Melbourne and we've put this many new stations in Queensland and we've gotten rid of all level crossings in Victoria. Sells papers. It it does sell papers and and that's, and it sells papers because passenger transport is focused on the voters. Yeah, of course. For freight, it's a very, very different story. So when I sit in front of people in Canberra or any state capital and you say, I get all that and it's good. It is good for the country to have public transport growth. But how much are you investing in rail freight? And pretty much every capital city, all of the rail freight companies who are a hugely integral part of the national supply chain basically get, get blocked out of that city for the peak period so the passenger trains can get priority. So there is there needs to be a specific focus on what is truly needed yep. in the rail freight sector in our country. Now, even then, there is a huge project that has been recently reviewed called the Inland Rail Project. Oh, yes. Which will effectively... Yeah, come on. It's been reviewed, but where where are we going to take it? Oh, that's a good question. It's like watching an episode episode of Utopia. So um, it's meant to be and should be a way to double stack containers from as close to Melbourne as you can get to as close to Brisbane as you can get. Okay. And that will take, because the rail share between Victoria and Queensland is 10 to 15% any other day, mm-hmm. road gets the rest. It's even worse between Melbourne and Sydney. It's 1% to 2% between Sydney and Brisbane. It's a similar number. So yeah, the right. amount of rail between our biggest cities is embarrassing to admit. Yeah. And so the concept here is that, okay, it directly connects Victoria to Queensland as close to Melbourne as, as, as it can be to get to as close as Brisbane as it can be. When it was construction was started, they hadn't decided the end point at either end. And only recently did they decide those endpoints, and they're less than optimal. But the only real commitment that's come out of that is to build the first stage out of Victoria to parks in regional yeah. New South Wales. Yes, right, okay, yeah. Now, when you think the purpose of that was for effectively for north-south freight, going to parks without a hard commitment to finish it within a certain period of time to Brisbane is, and I said this at a conference the other day, about as effective as building a bridge halfway to Tasmania. So the return on that project is really predicated on it being done properly. On top of that, that does get thrown back at you when you when you make the point about the lack of investment and it blocks out the sun for all of the other issues with rail. Mm-hmm. 
it's almost like a standard answer. Yes, we care about rail. Here's the billions of dollars we're spending on inland rail. But the east-west corridor going from the east coast to Perth is incredibly important. Um, 70 plus percent of everything that goes between those destinations does go on rail and it needs to go on rail. Mm. And so that needs more capacity, more resilience. We lost it for almost a full month when it flooded uh, just a year ago. That's almost embarrassing for a country like Australia to admit that we haven't invested in something that can withstand pretty bad flooding, but it still should be able to do it. What's the difference between efficiencies on uh, road compared to rail? Uh, It depends on which element you look at. Rail is, safety cost point of view, rail is 14 times better than road. Uh, From a carbon efficiency point of view, we are, it depends, all of rail is about 16 times more carbon efficient than than road transport. Yeah, right. But freight rail is between four and eight, depending on what study you look at. But it's still significantly better from a carbon efficiency point of view. We are cost competitive. In fact, in most cases, we're probably still cheaper than the road alternative. Mm-hmm. The issue is the last mile at either end. So yeah. what truck it can yeah. often do, not always do, is go from origin to destination without having to change. So we do have to have a, a premium, but it is it is a very efficient way to move large quantities and particularly supermarket goods, um, refrigerated goods. It's a very efficient way of doing that. And on the actual rail infrastructure we actually have now, Paul, um, capacity, what sort of percentage of capacity are we using? It depends on which corridor. We're probably using 70 plus percent of the capacity going between the east and west. We've just recently done the study to see how, how far we can push it before we need significantly more track or more passing loops or the things that you need to make sure that more trains can operate. So I think we're put in the zone of 70 to 80%, but there's still a long way to go to max that out. We can play our role as a company because the industry really has not spent, in my view, enough money on efficient equipment. So we're investing heavily in what's called a well wagon. A well wagon is... Uh, where two containers can be stacked on top of each other. And that's what the US do pretty much everywhere. Uh, So we can actually increase the amount of capacity by investing in the right equipment. We're doing that as we speak. So who is the bench bench model you're looking at internationally? So class one American railroads are very well known uh, for being good businesses. Uh, There's slight differences or more than slight differences. I mean, what the US, North America and Mexico, Canada – US and and Mexico, got right is that there is one standard gauge of railway width all over the the continent, not just the countries. In Australia, we narrow gauge in Queensland and the West Australian Passenger Network. We're broad gauge in Victoria and we're standard gauge, which is anything but standard in this country, in New South Wales and now Adelaide. The governments over the years have invested in making sure that the standard gauge corridors between the capital cities remains or becomes standard gauge, so you don't have to change. But still now today, when you take a standard gauge train over the border into Queensland, stop at our terminal at Acacia Ridge, if it's going any further on rail, you've got to take it off that train and put it on another train that runs on a narrow gauge network. So when you talk about benchmarks, and we may never in our lifetime, I'd say definitely never in our lifetime see that standardised because it's it's so expensive to fix. Is it? Massively expensive to fix. I mean, you think about it, it's a less than a foot difference in the width. And so to move a track out a little bit further, nice. 
is enormous. Yeah, okay. uh, and so you won't be able to do it. So in terms of benchmarking, the US carriers, the US network uh, rail operators, or the North American ones, to be fair, so the Canadians are very good and they're quite big, but they also have what's called vertical migrations. So quite often it's the, the North America is broken into geographic pieces by and large. Yep. And so they control the track so they can actually manage the track quality themselves and they control the above rail rolling stock as well. But it's a good way of doing it and they certainly have a higher density of transport on rail than we do here. So during all your years of experience in this sector, has there ever been a get-together of all the top chief execs and government looking at air, rail, and sea? And not how, in my and, time. And how we actually start thinking about it as a nation? Not, not in my time, no. I would like to see more thought leadership there from government, right? Because yep. one of the things that – and there's always pluses and minuses around benevolent dictatorships, right? But mm. having spent time running DP World, which when I was running DP World Australia – it was 25% owned by the Emiratis, so okay. I got to spend a lot of time with them over there. Their vision was at a government level, at a national level, and yep. so their whole economy is about them being a geographic hub for air travel, for container cargo, and now Etihad Rail is going to join the Gulf countries together as well. That's right. And where the main port in Dubai is located, it's called Jebel Ali, Jebel Ali has the port itself. It then has a tax-free zone that you can trade in that area. Mm -hmm. It then has a rail connection to, to disperse it all throughout the Gulf region on rail and then the new El Maktoum airport right behind it. Uh, so you've got air, land and sea and road, by the way, so they can disperse it by road as well. I always saw that vision coming from the government level yep. in the UAE. And they probably took it from the Singaporeans, didn't they? Most likely. Singapore's a great hub story, you know, particularly from and a geographic advantage being where they are, but they took advantage of yeah, that. Yeah, well, but it was a swampland many years ago too. Absolutely. Yep. So being where they are from a hub and spoke point of view for shipping and for air has been a massive driver of economic benefit to Singapore. So, so to go back to your original question, Greg, I certainly haven't gotten together with the heads of all of the transport modes in my time in this industry to talk about how we actually do it. And I think the part of that that stops us from doing it is, in a sense, we sort of compete with each other as well. I understand well, that. Right? understand that, yeah. And, and so the leadership should come from government. And if you want a really efficient supply chain, you've got to put some rules around us that force us to act in a way that is anything other than self-interest. And so... That has to be sort of imposed on us because we, as officers of our companies, we have to, by law, act in the best interest of our company. When we take an industry approach, you take the view that a rising tide floats all boats. That's right. And that we'll benefit, but the competition might benefit as well. And that's not a bad not thing a bad to thing. do. No, but no. when push comes to shove, if you're advocating for something that might cost you, you're never going to do it unless it's regulated on you to do it or there's something that actually allows you to credibly say, I have to do that, which is in deference to my fiduciary duties for the company. Okay. So bearing in mind where we where nine times out of 10, every politician calls out for more immigration. Correct. We're going to need more support in this area. Yeah. And you're, what you're saying is there's just not enough forward thinking. Yeah, clearly that's what I'm saying is that I would love to see – 
I'd really like to see Infrastructure Australia get reprioritised. Well, who's got oversight of it now? Uh, that's a really good question. I, I think it's Catherine King, but I don't actually know. Yeah. I know Anthony Albanese, that our Prime Minister, is a huge advocate for them because he advocated for them way back when he was the Minister. Yeah, well, we sat on the airport for a long period of time. That's right, and but we're now seeing that come to fruition and that'll yeah. be good for good for many aspects of aviation in our country. But Infrastructure Australia, what I'd love to see coming out of them mm. is a bipartisan or, a, or an apolitical vision uh, of what the country might look like and might need into the future. And it's we are really at the crossroads and I'd love to see it be a little bit more innovative than anything we've ever seen before. You see... There's advocates here and there's a high-speed ra- high rail authority being stood up. High-speed rail will work if it's regional centre to capital city. Yes. If it's capital to capital, it will be an enormous burden on the taxpayer. And I'm of the strong view that the aviation sector will deliver the needs of people wanting to move between those cities without a cent of government funding because it does it today. Right now, there's complaints about how expensive the airfares are, but is it really worth doing capital city to capital city in, with the traditional model? But you've got people like Elon Musk, you've got Richard Branson, who I had the great privilege of spending some time with when I was the CEO of Virgin Australia, doing things like the Hyperloop. So what is that? So the Hyperloop is basically a vacuum. It's a tube. And so it's driven by magnetic levitation inside a tube. So, and it's incredibly quick. Uh, if you believe the propaganda, there's no inertia and it can be in, uh, really, really safe and it can move people between point A and point B at very high speed. So, I mean, that those things are worth investigating and seeing whether or not they have a role to play in our country as well. So they might not, but at the very core of it, the vision should include the corridors and the potential types of transport that might use those corridors in the future and how we're actually going to support that with infrastructure coming forward. So you look back at Bradfield's plan now and you think, what a visionary. You read about tunnels that are still already under Sydney that never got used. Yeah, exactly. Because they changed their mind or there was not enough funding or that for whatever political purpose they decided that it wasn't necessary. Something's got to got to change in that sense. And I think if Infrastructure Australia are given a little bit more power, not necessarily power in decision-making, but planning power, um, I think that'll make a big difference to us. We're almost talking talking an accord, but to a particular sector, aren't we? Yeah. Where we can actually start coming together and thinking 5, 10, 15, 20 years ahead. And fair point what you say. Water rises, everyone benefits from it. Yeah. But you still be super competitive against each other at the same time. Correct. That's right. You saw, I have a, I've spent a lot of my career in in competitive spaces that are, there's not a lot of companies, so duopolies or three-player or four-player. Yeah. And so I've come to know the word coopetition really well. And the industry needs to cooperate for the greater good of the industry. Right. And then compete where you have to. And the ACCC doesn't necessarily like that, but there's plenty of cases where for the greater good, they allow the industry to cooperate. I also use that word a lot during the the Virgin pandemic uh, response. Mm -hmm. And 
I used to say if two football teams turned up, and I'm an AFL guy, right? Yep. If two football teams turned up to the MCG yep. or the SCG or one of the grounds here and the ground was ruined, they'd probably shoulder up to each other and say, look, let's work together to fix the playing field and then then let's go back out in the ground and beat each other up. Yeah. And so that's what I mean by competition. What's your biggest challenge right now in your, in your current role? The biggest challenge right now is is what we have talked a bit about already, and that is getting a level playing field and a focus on not just rail, and that sounds very self-serving for me to say it, but I have you know, spent enough time in different modes and different parts of the supply chain to say we really need to elevate the focus on Australia's supply chains. And so that means, yes, it means investment. It means a lot more money needs to go in to rail, there needs to be a level playing field so that the modes can sort of find, or as I said earlier, water can find its own level as well. What do you mean level playing field? So where where is this, where's your major issue? So with rail today- You want to talk us through who your company is? Yeah. So Pacific National, we are the largest private rail freight company in Australia. Okay. We're the biggest player in interstate transport of containerized freight. So supermarket shelves heavily rely on our service and efficiency. Uh, we um, we also take a lot from the ports of the country, either inland or take the inland exports to the ports. Yep. Play a big role there. And we also are a very big player in the coal export market here in Queensland and New South Wales. So we are a very important part of the supply chains of the country. Uh, we don't own any of the track we operate on, but our performance is heavily affected by how good or how bad that track is. And so one of the big problems that we do have is that there's multiple owners of that track with multiple regulatory environments and different rules. So for example, one of our containerized trains can hit Kalgoorlie yep. where the ownership of the track changes and the rules change for no real good reason other than they have a different opinion, the owners of that to what the Australian Rail Track Corporation who owns it to Kalgoorlie has about what we can and can't operate. Right. So without breaching anything too confidential, mm. we have to change the configurations of our train at Kalgoorlie on a track that just keeps going to Perth that's built to the same specs as the one that gets you to Kalgoorlie because the owners there, which is privately owned by private equity, yep. have a different view of what's efficient uh, or capable of running on their network. So unless the government has a nationalised view of supply chains, a real determination to standardise the way it operates, and that there's a, there's a standard way of doing things everywhere, and if you don't have that vision today, we'll never get there. It's a huge job. It'll take decades to get there, but that's got to start somewhere. Unless that happens... Self-interest is always going to push inefficiencies into the rail market here. And the worst thing I think about the difference between road and rail is that we pay track access charges to the track owners. Fair enough, they've invested hundreds of billions of dollars in it and they need to get a return on that investment. Yes. But because, and, and this is true for the government-owned parts as well, government still owns a lot of track in our country, but it's government-owned corporations like Queensland Rail, or it's a 
business, government business entity, GBE, at a federal level like the Australian Rail Track Corporation, mm-hmm. they have to wash their own face. They don't get any grant mm-hmm. funding from the government. Yeah, right. They have to be a, a liquid trading solvent business, which means they charge us full tote odds. So we are paying a lot more per tonne or per kilometre for rail access than the road industry does. They are subsidised. There's a lot more grant funding in road. Road gets a lot more fluid funding into it, which grows the capacity every year. So rail always feels like we're going back to the very beginning when we're asking for more money and trying to state the principles of rail again from the very get-go. So it makes it very difficult. So in terms of access charging investment, and because rail projects are by their nature, big projects, one big project will be worth a lot more in terms of the outgoing government taxpayer dollars than 100 road projects. So that one project gets a lot more scrutiny than any of the 100 do that aren't anywhere near as efficient or anywhere near as scrutinised as they should be. But it still adds capacity to road while rail is still begging with the begging bowl for extra money. What do you mean by the word nationalise? So is it nationalised in the sense that there's, if I go from this track to this track, it's the same fee or whatever I'm going to pay for that other track, you know, another couple hundred k's down? Is that what you're seeking? Or are you saying you want it run by government? Certainly not being that prescriptive about what, what I think should or should not happen. There should be a nationalised approach to the way all the owners operate, though. So I, I'm not necessarily advocating for renationalising the rail track network in the country. Okay. So I do think that there's, I do think government money should only go where private money is not willing. Yep. And private money is very willing to own the track yep. in our country. So if they're willing to invest in it, we should take it. Okay. Uh, what I'm looking for though is a national approach to the way they are required to operate inside that framework. So rather than the West Australian government deciding the regulatory regime for the West Australian network and the federal government setting the rules for the ARTC network, there should be a national supply chain authority that sets all of the standards, maybe sets the regulatory framework that gets adopted everywhere. Now, that's not an easy thing to do because when you sell off a public asset to a private owner, you're selling a future story, a future cash flow model. So if what you now are trying to do is do a U-turn and say, in order to do the right thing by the country, you can't make as much money, then there's these compensation discussions, there's all sorts of things. Not an easy thing to do. But someone at the federal level has to grab hold of what is the current and future needs of our supply chains and make sure that they get the time, attention and money that they need to be as efficient as they possibly can be, as simple as they can, but they are far from simple right now. And that's all in the greater good of the country. And it can only come from Canberra, in my view. You're listening to No Limitations with special guest Paul Scurra. On our next episode, I sit down with Jadon Cumberford, founder and chief executive officer at Unified Music Group. He actually was friends with my brother. Vance Joy and my brother sent me song Riptide and I just said wow this is amazing but the thing is like just because you got a great song there's still this huge road that you need to go down for it to turn into something and 
I've spent a lot of my time being really grateful that that moment happened for me because it was a real like career-changing moment for my business and for me personally. Be sure to join us on our next episode. And now, back to the show. How many competitors do you have then? That in itself is a really interesting question, Greg. We have lots of competitors because any way you can get uh, freight from Melbourne to Perth is a competitor to us. So in the rail freight sector, we have two competitors, um, predominantly in the containerized freight sector, with a fourth competitor doing a little bits and pieces of, of it on the back of other trains. In the coal market, we've got two other competitors. In the bulk market, we've got three other competitors on rail. But the biggest competitor is road in particular. So when you look at the freight task between Melbourne and Sydney, it's 98% of it goes on road, right. 98%. So some people like for their own benefit to position us as the big gorilla because we are quite sizable in the rail sector, but we are a minnow compared to the road industry. And so there are restraints put on on us as a company and on our industry per se, yeah. thinking that it's a, a less competitive market than it really is. Any mode of transport that can take freight from Melbourne to Sydney or Sydney to Brisbane or any of the capital cities is actually competitive to us, including sea. So there is a coastal shipping competition that comes and goes a little bit depending on how full the international ships are when they come in. But that is how many competitors we've got. Many, many, many competitors. Okay. And compared to the world price of freight, you know, I hear from manufacturers the cost of shipping bricks, for example, from Brizzy down to Melbourne or, Mizzy, or Melbourne to Brizzy costs an absolute bomb compared to shipping it from one country to another. Where do we stand on all this? We don't do too badly compared to like-for-like countries. So when you think about developed economies uh, that have a very good standard of living, we're not terrible, but we are a lot more expensive transport-wise kilometre for kilometre than some of the emerging markets. So it does add a little bit to the competitiveness of our importers and exporters. Yep. But having said that, again, for rail, unless there's a different grant funding model, anything that gets invested in rail has to be recovered through pricing. So we've got to be really mindful of how that investment's recovered in a way that it's not actually hurting the competitiveness of our our import-export market as well. Look, rail is not cheap. In fact, building roads is not cheap. So when you see China or Brazil or India all emerging and having cheaper transport, they're going to be caught up a little bit, I think, in the hard dollars that's going to be required to scale up to carry the sorts of things that we can carry. And so I think from an infrastructure point of view, they will lose a bit of an advantage when they start having to invest today's dollars in the capacity that's required to carry it. And the other advantage or disadvantage that's coming at them or the advantage that they will lose is that as technology gets better and better and better, and dare I say it, labour becomes less of the the benefit of taking offshore, then onshoring becomes an opportunity for Australia. Yep. So then the the discussion that has to be had is, okay, our labour might be a little bit more expensive, but we need a lot less of it because it's far more technical. Yep. Um, our transport costs might be a bit higher because we've got, frankly, it's higher for a number of reasons. One is being that we have higher safety standards, which is not a bad thing. Mm-hmm. And so even though they're higher, having 
less sovereign risk by manufacturing it in Australia or even having it closer to the source market actually provides an opportunity for our transport supply chains in this country. So it's a term known as onshoring and it's been happening in places like the US where because technology has taken away the emerging market labour cost advantage. Oh, it's just bringing it back in flights for China, et cetera. Yeah, so they're bringing it back to the US. They're manufacturing it closer to the source markets, to the markets that are going to purchase it ultimately, taking away the shipping transport costs as well and having more reliability uh, is something that I think Australia needs to be focusing on as well. So even though I think like for like we're okay, for emerging markets I think we are more expensive, Uh, I think that gap is going to close. And I think – uh, one way to actually ensure a, a bright future for our transport corridors here um, and those transport operators is to look at onshoring. Yeah, okay. You guys facing into some headwinds for the next 18, 24 months? Everyone in our country is, I think. So everyone's had the, the COVID headwind, yep. which was a black swan event of great proportions and everyone knows that. And, and we as a country reacted quite dramatically and history will tell us whether that was the right thing to do or not. And it's still really hard to pick whether it was, frankly. Mm. And, uh, you know, certainly hurt me uh, personally because, you know, the pandemic killed the airline I was running. So if I had my time again, I'd wish the pandemic never came. Uh, But the headwinds that are coming now are more economic. So we've had the pandemic and in my industry and the logistics industry, we've had weather. Yes. And so for the last two years as an industry, we've sort of been in crisis management mode the entire time. Now, COVID's going, uh, the the labour, associated labour issues around sick leave or lack of immigration helping us employ, all of those are are sort of behind us now. So we're getting better access to labour. There's less sick leave happening. There's less caution around, I'd say more normal caution around health uh, than what we had. And... With that in mind, we are recovering and then the quality of the network is recovering as well for us. So a number of those challenges, gladly, are starting to go off into the rear vision mirror. But what's fronting us now is the economic headwinds of the multiple interest rate rises and the impact that's starting to have on discretionary spending. Uh, And that discretionary spending is often luxury items that get transported around between capital cities yeah. on trains will come in on through the ports. And so, and I was speaking to a key retail customer just this morning saying mm. there's two things that are happening. They're not buying the new kettle or they're actually buying a cheaper new kettle. Yeah. So they're the sorts of things that I think are coming at us in the next 12 to 18 months. As a country, we also have some hedges to our economy, and that is the natural resources that we send. Which we rely on every time, yep. Absolutely. So I think with a with – a, and there is always luck involved, Greg, as, yeah, yeah. as we know, with, a, with sure. a bit of luck. Coal is, a, is something that is – you need to be very careful how you talk about coal now because it's such a, a big topic when it comes to ESG and carbon emissions. But it's, the world still needs coal mm-hmm. and Australian coal is the best quality coal in the world. So while it still needs coal, and there is zero doubt, and I hope it happens quickly, renewables will take share. But the energy appetite in India and China in particular is growing rapidly. Renewables will take share, but as the pie grows so quickly, we're still going to need coal. And if the world still needs coal, 
they're going to get it from somewhere. Mm. We should do our bit and make sure the best available coal is still available for as long as they need it. So we want to play our part as Pacific National, making sure that – and we have a transition story. We've heavily invested in our ESG future. Intermodal is a very – the intermodal where you carry containerized freights is a very good carbon story. But if we're too dramatic around Australian coal, it gets worse, not better in the short term run because it's such good quality compared to what else they'll go and get if we don't play our role. Mm. You think Australian government's got it right, what they're doing with regards to the economy? I, I can't understand why they're pumping so much and you know leaving the Reserve Bank with one trick only, which is to pull that lever and put the interest rates up. It's just hurting everyone. I'm no economist at all, Greg, but, but I do see the levers that get pulled and I do wonder how we got it so wrong with predicting it wasn't going to happen. Mm. And, I agree. And then seeing some of the decisions people made on the back of that assurance and then ha- being stuck with what they've got. And so I think we are going to see things slow down pretty quickly and hopefully, you know, when you're in a traffic jam and – or not a traffic jam, but you're in a you're in busy traffic and a guy at the front just touches his brakes yep. and not much happens and then he, he or she keeps going, but 100 cars back, they come to a full stop. Yeah, exactly. I hope that that's not the impact of the interest rate rises. I fear it could be. I agree. Where'd you grow up? I grew up in a suburb of Melbourne, a mad, passionate AFL person. Um, Any good as a player? I, I, I took myself pretty seriously as a footballer and um, spent some time at Richmond Football Club and injuries got the better of me and then uh, played – uh, in what was called the VFA then, or the oh, you VFA, played VFA did you? I did, yeah. Okay, you're, you're half decent then. Um, I was a legend in my own lunchtime, that's for sure. Um, I loved my footy. I took it really seriously, and and it taught me so much. So I grew up. So in, who were you playing with in those days at, at Richmond? Oh, who would have come through? Craig Lambert, that went on to be a very good player with Richmond and Brisbane. Tony Free, who ended up being the captain. Stephen James, the Bower brothers. Those boys, they'd come down from Mildura, which was Richmond's country zone. And I grew yeah. up in Richmond's city zone, Mount Waverley, Chadston area. Uh, but injuries weren't that kind to me and uh, that that certainly didn't help me progress. And I had a pretty bad knee injury and had surgery and missed two years when I was between the ages of 19 to 21, which is such formative years for a footballer. Absolutely. And so then I went and played in country leagues for a little while and then ended up back in the VFA and had, in the context of what was happening with my body, I was quite happy with how I went, but, you know, certainly uh, probably learnt a lot through that process that reminded me, you know, I still had a long way to go to make it to the professional level. But the real lesson in all of that uh, was that if you've got energy, put it into something. If you've got a focus or a passion, put it into something. So I actually don't think I would have put the passion and energy into my career that I did if I didn't have the setbacks with the injuries as well. So back to your original question, where did I grow up? Melbourne. Yep. And uh, grew up in a a working class suburb that was a housing commission, uh, concrete jungle, I used to call it. Yeah. Had a lot of union members as neighbours, a very, I'd say, very labour-oriented suburb. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the hotel that our house backed onto was the Matthew Flinders Hotel. It had the dubious honour of pouring the most beer of any pub 
in the country through their taps. Is that right? Yeah. So it was. Um, so certainly a lot of beer was drank there. So I learned a lot of lessons in that pub with through my dad and my older brother. Yeah. And there was some hardship. So. So what did mum and dad do? My mum, God bless her, she was um, a night shift worker at an ice cream factory. Okay. And she also worked during the day to be a cleaner for a family in Surrey Hills in Melbourne's Surrey Hills, not yep. Sydney, Surrey Hills. Yep. So she worked at Backside Off, so she was very good. Uh, and I'm very grateful to her for teaching me a lot of life lessons as well, particularly hard work. My father was actually a merchant seaman. And so he spent 18 years in the Merchant Navy. Yep. Back in the days where, when they were bored on the ship out in the middle of the ocean, there was no restrictions on alcohol. So he formed a habit of imbibing a lot. Yes. And that harmed his health a lot. And then when he finished there, and he was always away for a month, and then home for a month and away for a month and home for a month, and that was a very difficult thing to do. And on the month he was back, he would spend a lot of time in that pub. Yep. I love my dad, by the way. You know, he was... Very funny man, but never really grew up. I don't think the career allowed him to grow up. Then he became a, uh, a stevedore, oh, yeah. which is really ironic because um, back in 2013, I was made the CEO of the very last company he worked for before he passed away. You're right. And I didn't learn that until I turned up to introduce myself to the staff because the company that he last worked for had changed its name twice before I got to where I got to. But I had all these guys come up to me and say, Oh, you you might be the CEO, but you're sort of one of us because you're Davy Scurra's son. Okay. Really? Okay. Um, did you work with my dad? And I say, yeah, yeah. And then they'd describe something about him. To start with, I thought they were trying to just get in good with a new CEO, but then they'd say something about my dad that was only people that knew him would know. Yeah, right. So it was true. So it sort of held me in good stead because I could say, look, I know all the tricks he used to pull. <laughs> I know all the scams that he was a part of. So you can't pull it all over my eyes. So what did you set out to do? You obviously set out to be a football player. I was a rules player. Yeah. Injury, as you say, came along. So you got to change course and you suddenly build this career in the sector we've been talking about for the last 40 minutes. So is this off the back of the old man opening some doors or how did this all come about? Not, not at all. I, I accidentally ended up in stevedoring. Okay. What happened, I think through all of that, and there was a point where m my mum and dad got divorced and f somehow, and I actually probably don't know the full story, Greg, but somehow mum, who had ended up with the family home, which was in that concrete jungle, yep. something happened where she lost it through something dad did post all of that. Oh, really? Yeah, and I still don't really know. Yeah, right. So we lost our home. Gosh. Um, and so we, we had to go and find somewhere else to live very quickly. Uh, and I, at that point, the, the great nature of team sport and, and AFL in particular is a real leveller. It doesn't yep. matter where you come from, what your background is. Yep. You get treated with respect and you learn things like goal setting, your discipline, all of the things that I think really serve me well in life. Those lessons kicked in. And so I realised that, you know, if I'm going to be anything, I have to basically depend on myself to do it. And you've got to go and get the ball too. And you've got to go get it. You've got to go get it. So I still remember reading some books about the power of the mind. Oh, here we go. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it's okay. – it's, um, yep. and it's a funny – funny you want what's to talk about with, new what's stuff. This, what's this, uh, Think and Grow Rich or where, how far back was, we going? That was one of them. In Napoleon um, Hill, wasn't it? That was, that was absolutely one of them. Yep. Uh, 
the, the themes, um, the first book I read, I've, I've just remembered it. I've locked this out of my memory. It was called The Lazy Man's Way to Riches. Okay. So the title got me. Yeah. <laughs> the title got me. But it was all about belief and mind power. Yeah, well, where was your confidence at this point? You seen mum and dad break up. You lost the house. You strong in confidence or are you mentally then? Um, I would have described myself as a cocky kid. Yeah, okay. Well, because you're a good footballer? I think it was a bit of bravado and possibly that. I was naturally good at sport, so cricket, basketball and football I was – I was okay at, but I was, you know, I was a little bit cocky. I, I actually didn't have to try hard at school in the subjects I liked. Yeah, okay. Let's be clear about that. The subjects I liked, uh, the ones that I didn't like were a massive chore, but I, I was a bit of a cocky kid, but I think deep down I was really insecure. And so I would hang out a lot with people who were, who had a much more stable family life than me and see what they had and and maybe a little bit of envy. Okay. Jealousy possibly was there, but I was certainly, for all of my cockiness, I think there was a bit of bravado behind that and there was a little bit of insecurity. All right. But I know what I did learn through reading those books, and not everyone buys into to this no, there's at a lot all, in them. but there's a lot in them. And a lot in making sure that you uh, set a vision, make sure that you believe that, no one's born with any entitlement. You know, we've all born flesh and blood. What gives someone else a right to have something that I might think I'm entitled to get or entitled to chase at the very least? So what was the big takeaway? Oh, the big takeaway with that is success, in my view, comes through a series of very small steps over a very long period of time. Everyone who's an overnight success in the world's eyes will tell you this is not something that just happened overnight. You know, I envisaged this way back when I was a kid. This is what I've always dreamed of. And so I think what you learn there is have a vision of what success looks like for you. Yeah. And don't overthink it, actually. There's a lot of these public speakers that will say, have a vision board and look at it every day. And it never worked for me because it reminded me of what I don't have today. So I'd have a much broader picture of, I just know this is going to happen one day. And I actually told people back in the late 1990s mm-hmm. that I would be the CEO of Qantas. Did you really? One day. I did, yeah. Well, you weren't too far off. I nearly got there. I was the major competitor CEO. But I used to always say, and not to everybody, I certainly wasn't cocky about it, but people who I was close to enough to confide in when they'd say, so where do you want to end up? yeah. I would say I see myself running an airline. All right. But you didn't go to uni. I did not go to uni. So roadblocks as a result of that? Oh, some. Not many. So how do you overcome them? Get things done. Achieve. Focus on the job you're in today and do it as well as you possibly can. I see this with executives that come through the system right now. You can see that their eye is not on their current job. They're looking to the next one. Now, that's fine to... As I said before, have a vision of where you're going to go and believe you're capable of getting there. But then understand that what you're currently doing, doing that as well as you possibly can, is one of the key ingredients to actually taking that next step. Now, I also noticed you jumped around a little bit in your career. I did. Probably a lot more than I've seen others do, and that's not a bad thing either. Yeah, not always by design. I'd like to claim it was all planned out that way, (laughs) but 
and I have to say, when I went to become the CEO of DP World Australia, I started thinking then maybe this airline dream thing is not going to come off. But then I would just say, it's, you know, almost for someone else to decide that. So just keep doing what you do well. And so uh, why did I move around? Well, ANSEP was a big part of my past. Yeah, I saw that. Would have been some good learnings there. Uh, amazing learning, learnings. You talk about university. I learned more in that six-month period of going through the ending of ANSET than I think I ever would have learned in university. Yep. So there was no – I did not choose to leave there. I got involved with setting up Rex, which is still flying today. But at that point in time, the family decision was to move to Queensland and take a government-backed tourism job. Why would you want to do that? You're taking the safety option. At that point in time, yeah, I did. Yeah. Why would you do that? You're the entrepreneur. You're the hard-ass footballer. What's going on? Uh, we just had our second daughter. Yep. And we had a mortgage. And to be honest, the job was sold to me beautifully. It was the general manager of the Queensland Travel Centres or the group general manager of Queensland Travel Centres and Sun Lover Holidays. Your job is selling Queensland holidays to the world. Sounds pretty attractive. Yeah. Particularly when- uh, you It shouldn't know, be a hard sell if you get it right either. No, no. It was, and it was a lot of fun. It was a hard job. It was a lot of fun though. But- on the 14th of September, 2001, mm. three days after 9-11, mm. ANSET was cut loose and put into administration by Air New Zealand. Mm. And so I lost my job then. And I loved the airline industry, which is one of the key reasons why I kept believing I could go back there. Okay. Then Lindsay Fox and Solly Lou almost saved it, almost. And I had the pleasure of working, particularly with Lindsay, very closely through that period of time. But the dream fell over again on the 1st of March, 2002. Mm -hmm. And Rex, to the great credit of those that stayed around, was undercapitalized. We raised enough money to buy Hazelton and Kendall, but it was always going to be really tight. Yep. I wasn't sure I had a third disappointment in me at that point in time. Right. And so I wanted to reset, move to Brisbane and took this job. And two years into it, uh, Screw Turner, Graham Turner, yep. one of the most characteristic individuals in the travel industry globally asked me to go and work directly for him in a senior global leadership role. Yep. Effectively working alongside the then CEO, Shane Flynn, the two of us reported to Screw. Why did he ask you to join him? You've come a long way suddenly very quickly. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, don't, I, I can't really remember. But the job sounded really good. Mm -hmm. I think what they were looking – okay, I do have a an inkling as to why, but it's Come something on. that I don't really um, remember the complete story about. They were looking to vertically integrate. So at that point, they were retailers, travel yeah. retailers, yeah. and they were spending a lot of money through the companies like the one I was running, Sun Lover Holidays and yep. Qantas Holidays and travel wholesalers, they're called, who act as a middleman. They package things up and they – actually charge very high commissions to do so. Mm -hmm. And they pass half of that onto the travel agent but keep half for themselves. So I think Screw's vision then was to become the developer of that product and to get a chunk of the pie or a bite of the ticket all the way along. Makes sense. And so I think that expertise appealed to him as well. But he was um, he was a lot of fun to work with. Where'd the real big break come for you? In a leadership sense, I think the real big break came – when Lance Hockridge, who... Hang on, Lance. 
XBHP yeah. uh, Blue Scope. and Blue Scope was asked by the Queensland government to take over Queensland QR, it was at the time, QR Limited, which was a much bigger company than what Queensland Rail is today. Mm, enormous. Because it was the combination of Queensland Rail as, as we know it today and Horizon, which is also a significant rail freight company. And so Lance uh, was charged with turning it around and I think from the outset was asked to look at the commercial side and see if we're ever going to split this up, how we do it. John Prescott, XBHP Managing Director, was the chairman at the time. And I got a call from out of nowhere saying, hey, this is a bit left field, but Lance needs someone to run the passenger business of Queensland Rail and remembers meeting you back in the BHP days when I was at American Express and knows you've got an airline background and thinks that sort of customer service mentality would work really well here at Queensland Rail. I had never seen myself as a public transport person, but I was really intrigued. So I went and met with Lance and was really impressed with his vision. And I really liked the challenge. And, you know, long 150-year-old company with a very strong union involvement, long tenure individuals, very insular. So, you know, rail is a bit of a dark art. Enormous resistance, surely. A lot of resistance to change. Um, in fact, you know, big debate to the government too, wasn't it? Yes. Whether we even going to privatise this element uh, of it? Absolutely, and very unlabour-like to privatise it. But they <laughs> did it off the back of the GFC. But I really, I like that challenge, and I do like a challenge, I must say. And so, going there, and the first thing that was said to me by a senior engineer was, "Yeah, let's see how you go, buddy. You will learn pretty quickly." that there's the right way, the wrong way, and the railway. (laughs) (laughs) And so I thought, okay, I took that as a bit of a challenge. And the one thing jumping around or spending time in multiple different industries and companies has done for me. So there is this advantage when you jump around a bit, isn't there? Absolutely. Everybody puts too much pressure on or focus on, oh, you've been there for five or ten years. I think there is some real benefits as long as you learn every time. Everyone thinks they're different. Everyone thinks they're different, but most of the people who think they're different are the ones that actually haven't been able to get out and experience that there's a lot more similar than there is different. And so in the rail industry, the airline industry, the hotel industry, stevedoring, it's all very heavy equipment, very expensive, long dated, so real capital intensiveness to it, where you need to operate it to a level of a high standard. People want it more at per- certain parts of the day, week or year than other parts. There's a lot of similarities. And so that actually helped me. So I took an airline mentality to the passenger business at QR and, and and we did some really good stuff there. It was a lot of fun. We changed the culture to a point where I was really proud of what we did. Um, we won 11 out of 12 national customer service awards within 18 months. Uh, and that was, that was the big break, I think, because it actually – it proved to me first and foremost that I could lead big, complex organisations uh, with a multi-dimensional blue-collar, white-collar mix with massive capital programs. Our capital delivery program was a billion dollars per year Yeah, right. with a customer service element. So to me, that was the making of, of my career or the big break. What did you learn about unions? Oh, you grew up as a young bloke. You're going back earlier to talking through that part, but now you're engaging with them. Unions have a very useful 
purpose. Definitely, and, I'm, and I have been quoted saying you can't fall into the trap as a CEO of wishing them away. And so for those that don't accept it, I, I would recommend them to find a way to accept that, you know, unions can play a role. Yeah, I agree. And they are there for a purpose to represent the greater good of, of the employee base. I do think a lot of the original reasons for unions starting have now been legislated away. So a lot of it is law, but there's still a representative voice there and a collective approach that works well for the, for the employees. So my view is you can't wish them away. You've got to engage with them. 90% of the time, if you said what's important to you and what's important to us is actually quite an alignment. You know, we'd like a great culture where people are treated well, they're safe, when they turn up to work. And if you sit down and have that discussion with the unions, what is really important to you here? There's a lot of commonality. What I've done in the past is then say, so here's where we don't agree. And here's where I don't think we ever will. And I respect that you're going to go hard that way. And you need to respect that I'm going to go hard that way. And there's processes if we can't find a middle ground that we have to engage in that are there for that very reason. And that's, you know, arbitration or mediation. They can take legally take strike action. I can legally respond as a CEO. Let's just be alive to all of that playing out. But that's in the 10% space. So once all that's done and dusted, we come to an agreement, let's get back to the 90 and let's work together. One of the things that I have learned through all of the companies that I've run is that you cannot keep everybody happy. And customers want to be happy. Shareholders want to be happy. Your people want to be happy. So I simplify the purpose of the companies I run to say my purpose is happy people, happy customers, happy shareholders, but they can't all be blissfully happy all the time. So my job is to keep them mostly happy most of the time because if you don't, the equilibrium is killed. Yeah. You lose the balance. And I can say this you know, with um, Virgin, frankly, very happy people, very happy customers, very unhappy shareholders. And so if you lose the balance – there is the extreme consequence as well, but it's very important. So we use that a lot, actually, in our union negotiations. Look, we are very focused on making sure our people are happy, but to a limit, and there's a reason for it. And the other part of that equation is that we talk about financial strength as a priority pillar with our, within our organisations, and I've taken this from company to company. I don't talk about profit. Profit gets demonised by unions and we try to explain why it's important that we are financially strong at what we do. And which we can employ people, surely. Well, you can invest in new equipment. That's right. Safety as well. Safety you it, safety is a big part of being financially strength. You, you're not tempted, not that I ever have been, frankly, Greg, but you're not tempted to take shortcuts. Safety, new equipment, job security, acquisitions, yeah. controlling your own destiny. But has the dialogue changed now? Are we still talking the same language that you were 15, 20 years ago? For me personally? Yeah. Are you dealing with unions all the time? Yeah, a little bit. The dialogue has changed a little bit. I think in the early days, I didn't really fall in the trap of wishing them away, but I got a bit annoyed by them. Yep. And I felt that was they, – they can be frustrating, like any good manager that reports yep. to me can be frustrating. You yep. know, there's, there's no perfect. But I, I let it get to me a bit too much in the early days. Um, and I found that I wasn't explaining to them properly – why I wanted to do certain things. What I was thinking inside is, hey, I, 
I wish I could give you 10% pay rise. That'd be the easiest thing for me to do. And I'd love to be Mr. Popular and do that. But if I do that and I feel good walking out of this room, I didn't have to go and tell my customers their prices are going up more than they would have expected and our shareholders' returns are going down. I wasn't great at explaining that in the early days, but I've become a lot better at that just through sheer experience. You had some pretty tough times, didn't you? There was severe floods at one one point during your role there? At Queensland Rail. Yeah. Yeah, so I was the CEO when the 2011 floods happened. So how bad were they? They were really bad, really bad. Um, And what was bad about them, Greg, is they – didn't just happen in one location. So there was a L, which is the bad one. I'm not sure the old Eno or something like <laughs> the that. The bad one. We had the bad one. <laughs> the bad one happened and there was floods all over the country. So you had Rockhampton, basically everything up in that region was flooded. Rockhampton had the benefit of being a slow rising flood so people could prepare for it better. Uh, you had the Brisbane suburban area, and then you had this sort of inland tsunami that happened up in Toowoomba, which just came out of nowhere. Remember that? And so 4,000 kilometres of track in that network. Now, that's 50% of the track across the entire state of Queensland was underwater at the same time. And so we were well prepared for it. So with operational businesses like this, the old cliche, plan for the worst and hope for the best. Yep. And so we were well rehearsed. But even then, we were calling our crisis centre together far more frequently than we'd ever prepared to do. And we were making very good, quick decisions, in my view. The team were making great decisions around what to do. And we were monitoring it on a minute-by-minute basis. And there were, you know, we were shutting networks without any question of, should we keep it open or not? If it's not safe, shut it. But we also, where it was safe to do so, kept operating because people, you might remember, the CBD of Brisbane was shut down. Mm. They actually had contemplated having to turn off the grid, the power grid in the CBD. And so there's a lot of people needing to get home. And if we didn't operate as far as we could when it was safe to do so, there was no way for them to get home. And so we kept operating, juggling the time. We didn't. We threw the timetable out the window. Um, and so we, we operated until it was unsafe to do so. What did you learn under uh, crisis management, I guess, or what did you observe of other people? It's really interesting in a crisis, you see some people you don't expect to step up, step up, and some who you would expect to do better go to water. And I was listening to a podcast yesterday, which reminded me of of that exact situation, what happened in the crisis centre of Queensland Rail during the floods. And it's a Huberman podcast, and he was talking to a Navy SEAL guy, and he was relaying some of his experience. He said, look, what he's learned in the Navy SEALs is that there's garrison and there's combat. And garrison is where it's non-combat and everything's planned and structured. So you know, hey, we're going down to the shooting range today. I'm going to shoot 100 rounds into the target. When I get back, I have to polish my shoes and do all the things that make me look disciplined. Tomorrow I get up and we're doing a five-mile march. Combat, on the other hand, is chaotic Mm. and nowhere near as structured as that. And so some people that are terrible at garrison are fantastic at combat. And in his view, you've got to be very picky about the type of people you ask to do either Uh, because it's one thing to be good in theory and good in structure. It's another thing not to be. So that really reminded me of my time sitting around the crisis management centre at Queensland Rail. Some people were great in combat and some people who were good in garrison weren't so good in combat. How good were you in communicating? Uh, I think others would, I don't like to judge myself there. We prioritised it a lot though. 
So in those floods, remembering that communication tools today are far more nimble than they were back then, but mm. you still had email, you could still do a video and attach it to an email. And so we had the philosophy that every time we came together and we were coming together hourly as a leadership team and getting, you know, situation updates and then dispersing out to deploy those decisions every time, every hour, I or one of my team would jump onto either a video or an email and say, we've just discussed these three things or these four things. Here's what we've decided to do. Here's what we've got a watching brief on. Stay tuned. Yep. Effectively. At, all the way back to my ANSET days, I remember the lack of communication and how stressful that was mm. and how I'd be standing for the period I wasn't back in the office helping them resurrect. I'd be standing at my lounge room window watching for the postman to come past to see, is today the day when a letter telling me what the hell's going on is going to be dropped into my letterbox? Yeah, right. And he'd go past and not stop. Oh, no. Not, uh, how long is this going on? This, the uncertainty killed me. So I remember that and made sure that if I've got nothing to say, I'm still going to tell everyone I've got nothing to say. Listen, we just met. There's been real, no real update. Here's two other things you need to know. I'll come back on in an hour. That really served me well in the Virgin pandemic crisis. Yeah. And, and we had instantaneous ways of communicating. So yeah. we used the tool Workplace by Facebook or Meta now. Yeah. And we were able to do live updates. And we had eight and a half to 9,000 people watching those live updates. And I was doing multiple numbers of them per day. Communication in a crisis is incredibly important. How'd you go? Maybe still want to cover it off as well. Making decisions about having all the information. Like, how did you evaluate your own performance? Because surely you got to you, you got to be making decisions like that, right? Based on, okay, you think you got facts, but you know, floods change pretty quickly as well. I think you have to be comfortable outside of safety. I think there's an uncompromising approach to safety. You can't afford to make mistakes. Outside of that, I think you've got to be comfortable with making calls, being decisive where it actually might not be in the long run the right call. Because I just think that possibility plays out. If you're not alive to that, I think you get paralyzed into making nothing, no decisions. And so safety aside, everything else I think you have to be fluid on. And it's really important. So I think that the important factor there is not to be, I've never been a command and control type leader to say, I don't care what you think, just do this. I'll always say, look, this is a situation. What are our options? And we would have a discussion as a team. The options would come up and we'd go, right, well, we need to pick one of these options. And if I need to step in and say that as the CEO, I will. Inevitably, mostly we landed on the same option as a team. Yep. But you always get better suggestions, much better suggestions by asking. And it's not always just about asking my direct team. If it's a situation that involves a specific site, you get the guy from the site yeah. on the phone yep. and you say, hey, listen, this is what we're hearing and seeing. What are you hearing and seeing? Help us make a decision. But you've got to be comfortable that the risk of making a mistake exists. I can't say that the decisions I've made in all of those circumstances have been perfect and not even sure I'd make the same decisions in some cases, but you have to do what you can do with the information you've got at hand. DP World, how did that come about? I was at Queensland Rail. Yep. And there was a downside to that and it was government and it was bureaucratic. And I think you said to me before, why, why, why would you go to a government job, right? Being a little bit more entrepreneurial and a little bit more it's a word without insulting people, a little bit more um, 
private sector focused. Yep. I was approached then by Lance Hockridge again. So we had split the company in two and he'd taken the private side and I took the public side. So that's Horizon? Yeah, so he took Horizon, yep. which was known as QR National back then and he floated that. Yep. And so he was really good with his advice and so was John Prescott. They said, look, this the experience you'll get by running Queensland Rail as a CEO and reporting to a board will be invaluable to you. Go down that path. Yep. But we're open-minded about when you're ready to come back here and we'll bring you back as an exec. And so that was a, a sort of a loose agreement for quite a while. And then early 2012, that eventuated. And I went back as the leader of the commercial and marketing division. And it was a pretty big task at that time. Pacific National, the company on our run, was fiercely competing to enter that market. And we had 190 million tonnes of coal on contract. And the year that I went back there, 130 million of that was contestable. Yeah, right. And it's you go back through the history books, it's no secret that the miners at the time weren't overly satisfied with QR slash Horizon's performance. Yep. And so a lot of things had to change. So, and for lots of reasons, you know, the team came together and at the end of that story, we kept it all and we actually imp- improved the returns. For some reason that put me on a national radar. And when DP World were looking for uh, someone to come and take over, I was approached by the, the recruitment firm. Yep. Initially, I have to be honest, I hadn't heard of them, DP World. Um, in the world that my dad was in, it was called Conost and then P&O. Oh, yeah, yeah. 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 And so I, I actually didn't know who they were. Uh, so I went went along for the discussion out of curiosity and it felt a bit fatalistic because it, it sort of felt like I was slowly working my way towards containerized freight because I was doing passengers, I was doing airlines, then passenger rail, then freight rail, and then freight handling at ports by going to DP World. It sort of felt like someone wrote this story and I'm only just cluing up to it, right? And the added complexity of it being a company or an industry my dad used to be in, so it triggered my curiosity. So then I went and had a chat to them and got more and more interested in it. And again, liking a, a challenge, it was a time where all of the ports were being privatised as a part of the asset recycling program. As a part of the privatisation program, and in order to make it more attractive, the governments who owned those ports had allowed a third entrant to come in, so it was no longer your duopoly. Privatising, which, and I know some of my current owners will get upset with me for saying this, but the privatisation of ports meant that more commercial rents were being charged, yep. so rents were going up, so there was more capacity because there was a third player coming in. Yep. And shipping lines were consolidating, so they had more buying power. So higher rents, more competition, greater buying power was all going the opposite direction to what, you know, you'd really like it to be. So I went through that that challenge and we went through a major cultural change at DP World. We um, changed the customer service focus. Uh, we effectively had to invent new revenue streams to protect the bottom line and it's now more profitable than it's ever been. So how do you do that for those budding CEOs out there? So we're talking about change management to its extreme, sounds like. How do you go about that? You have to be real about where you are and just get the facts on the table. So there is 
not everywhere, but in some of the companies I've been into, there's a habit of telling management and board what they want to hear without disclosing the real problem. So honesty, frankness, and owning up to where you are is very important. In order to do that, though, you've got to have verifiable data. It's really important. So, and I I have done this in all the companies I've gone into, you say, I don't care what the answers we get back, to be honest. I'd like them, frankly, I'd like them to be a little bit more positive than negative, but whatever comes back, that's just is what it is. So let's ask our shareholders firstly, what do they think is good and bad? Let's ask our people in a deep ranging engagement survey in a higher frequency than I think a lot of companies do. And let's ask our customers to rank us, to be honest with us, to tell us there was a survey given to me that had been done external to DP World when I got there that said 88% of the industry would prefer Patrick's to DP World. We had 51% market share or 50% market share, which meant that most of our customers didn't want to be with us. And they were there because of either a contractual arrangement or a link to the global parent, which wasn't good. So where are we really starting from? What are What's working, what's not? What are the problems we have to fix? And how do we map out the step-by-step change to get there? So I, I like to brand that program. Mm-hmm. So at DP World, we call it our compass, which is made up of your vision, your purpose, your priority pillars and your behaviours. Okay. And everything we did then was compass-based. So safety was our number one pillar there, of course. Our vision was to care more. That was it care more about our customers, care more about our shareholders, care more about our people, but it was just to care more. We've got a very different vision where we are now and I had a version of it called our radar at Virgin yep. and here it's called our P&A. So, so, so doing that brings everyone together? Yeah, so you co-create it though. Yeah. So I have a I have a vision for what the end result should look like. All right. But it has to be – it's a bit bit like a, an outline that you actually all come together. And how, how long do you give yourself to do that? So you come in, you're the new CEO, you just, you've just you done the – and you never told the full story either when you walk into it, are you? No. I'm sure you're going to find out something a little bit different when you walk in. Yes. You're then going to work and look at what you've got reporting into yourself and then you suddenly say, okay, I'm going to create something here that we can all be aligned to. How long do you give yourself to do that? It really depends on the company and the task. If you do it too quickly though – it's a tablet from above. Yep. I'm here now. This is the way we're going to do things. Yeah, everyone, you haven't engaged me. Yeah, everyone do it. Yep. So you've got to give yourself enough time. So I think six months is, is a, there or thereabouts. Okay. Because it allows you to, to truly listen to all of the stakeholders, your customers, your people, and your shareholders. Sometimes that platform is burning too quickly to wait that long, but you have to genuinely listen, not just so you can listen. So listen, we're going to change this company. We're pretty clear that something's not working as well as it should in this space, but we need to know more about it. Here's a series of surveys that are coming out. It's in your best interest to fill it out. Quite often, just the engagement numbers will tell you where you're at. Do the same with your customers. Do the same with your shareholders. Then you bring management in or you bring a slice of a horizontal section of people in. So you have someone from the front line, someone from supervisor, someone from Melbourne, someone from Perth, and you actually have them as your conscience. Okay. And then that allows you to shape and create the outcome and they all feel like they've owned it. And so when we stand up and say Pacific National now, our P&A is our DNA. It's play on, play on words. Yep. Everything we do and everything we say links back to this in terms of what's important and how we do it and where we're headed. The vision of Pacific National is to be the most trusted and respected logistics partner. 
trust and respect are very big things. And the purpose is to deliver what matters for our people, our customers and our shareholders, which goes back to the story I was telling before. And we've got five pillars that are everyone's job, no matter what level you're at in the company, no matter what your job is, safety must always come first. People and leadership come so they're, they're meant to be equal. Safety is more yeah. equal than others. Yep. People and leadership, we call out leadership because particularly in companies where you've had long-term employees with an old command and control past, yep. you need to circuit break it. So leadership, uh, the way it used to be done, isn't the way it works anymore. Mm-hmm. So you've got to deliberately circuit break the style of leadership that now works. So yep. that's why we call out people and leadership. The center pillar is customers. So yep. work together, innovate together, succeed together. Community, we operate now in 90 different communities. So that's how we conduct ourselves and behave in a town of 500 people versus how we approach ESG, for example. And financial strength is the fifth pillar. So this is important that for us to be on this whole journey to be strong financially, make money. And then we've got six values or behaviours which are around kindness and gratitude, making things simple, sharing more. And those things matter a hell of a lot because they are now the catch cries. So when all of my leaders say something on workplace now, they say, you know, in accordance with our P&A, we're going to share more with you. And so everyone knows this journey we're on. And so co-creating it, going back to your original question, six months is around the sweet spot, but I wouldn't progress until you can convince yourself, do the people we've involved feel like they own it as much as I own it? Can they see their own words coming back at me in this and feel like they've co-created it with me? Because if you don't do that, it's someone else's idea. And I guess the big thing for you as a CEO is what you surround yourself with, obviously. How long do you give yourself when you normally assess individuals? I like to be quicker rather than slower. When I went into Virgin, I had pretty much renewed the leadership team within six months. Six months? Yeah. And that was appropriate at the time, I, I thought. you know, And it's not necessarily a statement on the competence of those people but it's really about the direction you're going and alignment. And you want to make sure that it's really important that the teams you pull together aren't just great individuals, but they know how to play as a part of a team yep. and know what roles to play and know when to stay in their own swim lane or when to drift over and help. Well, just on that, we also got things called boards. Who sets the vision? Who sets the vision? Uh, the vision, so bringing the board and shareholders along yep. the journey is very important. So the CEO and the exec team set the vision? I think it's a combination of the board and the exec team. Okay. I do. You can waste a lot of time if you have a vision that the board doesn't buy into. And so I think it's important that they are equally kept on the journey and they equally feel like they've co-created it. And through that process that we just went through at Pacific National, certainly did it at um, Virgin and DP World and others, is to explain the importance of, because the real answer, sometimes when when you do surveys, people say, we just don't understand our strategy. Drilling into that, if you say, what do you mean by strategy? You'll get a hundred different answers, right? But really what it boils down to is people want to know, what am I getting out of bed to do today? And what, how does it make a difference? So where are we headed? So you don't have to outlay your strategy out chapter and verse to your entire workforce. You have to give them direction and purpose. And you can actually, and the simpler the better in my view, so they can adapt it to their individual role. And so 
I think it's really important that the shareholders slash board, the people and the customers, and in some businesses, government stakeholders are bought on that journey so they feel as if there's a sense of ownership. All right. Well, I'm building to that because the next big interesting bit we're going to talk about is Virgin. Mm. What's the story behind it? You got the approach. What were you tasked to deliver? I was thrilled to get that job for all of the reasons I spoke before. It actually was a dream that came to fruition and that I'd been, I wouldn't say fixated on, but been pretty open in my ambition for a long time. And I, I competed for the job. I certainly wasn't tapped and offered the job when it was available and, and it was a rigorous search process yep. that was global. And I had been preparing for it for a lot longer than that process though on the chance that it came up. And so I'd done a lot of homework about the airline, its ownership structure, the decisions it had made, the culture, uh, the cost base, what was working, what wasn't working. And I'd actually done both deep financial an analysis on it and spent a fair bit of time talking about the qualitative side of it as well. And that really prepared me well to go in and, and pitch for the job. So it was mm -hmm. a sales pitch. Yep. As you do. But it was really about- and what, what were we actually pitching? It was certainly wasn't to, which is not my style, to go in there and, and criticise previous ownership, but, but it was to, to talk about, so where are you now and how do you honour that investment? Yep. So Virgin had great people culture and a really good front, front line work ethic and attitude still does really, really good at their jobs. Uh, they had invested heavily in the product, chased after Qantas, and gone into the corporate market, which in isolation is a good thing to do. That's where all the money is made. Well, not all, but most of the, the money, the base load of your revenue is in the corporate market. But it was an expensive pursuit. And so honouring that investment was for me to then simplify it a bit to bring profit back into the discussion with the shareholders or financial strength into the discussion with our people. And I certainly was very open with the market when I got the job to say, we, we need to get us back to a strong profitable position uh, because the industry needs it. Yep. And which meant going away from matching Qantas, you know, seed for seed in terms of capacity growth and being more rational for our own good, not necessarily trying to win the battle and hoping that by a more rational industry happening, that our shareholders were better off because of it. So I pitched a lot of that at them and talked about reintroducing. So there was a, a coming together of a number of different businesses for Virgin that people forget, acquisition of SkyWest, the A330s coming in to join the 777. So it became more complex uh, than ideally you'd like. So working out of that and becoming a little bit more simple because standardization in an operating environment is very important because yep. you're not replicating engineers or training and or carrying spares for different types of aircraft. So uh, I had a simplification story, a profit story, a culture story that they they liked, uh, and I got some chance to implement it. And where does that story compare to the, um, you know, the arch enemy Qantas? What's your point of difference? Is were you going to go into battle? Did you need to go into battle, or did you just run your own game? We were running our own game. So you have to 
well, I always took the view anyway that you have to understand that you are playing in a market with a pretty dominant player yes, exactly. uh, that has its strengths and weaknesses. And what was going to help us was to be not the same as them but different to them and give reason for people to like that difference. And at the end of the day, aircraft are the same no matter what brand is on the outside. So that difference uh, was always the experience people got in our lounges or on board. And then the long-term plan was – and Qantas's brand is so powerful and so good. Even now it might have come off a little bit, but so mm. powerful and so good that it can demand a premium. So the ambition to get to the same sort of root economics as them – was probably a leap too far, but to close the gap a lot was really reliant on so many different factors, one being rational in the market, the other being such a good experience that those that aren't sort of wedded to or so stuck in the corner system that they can't get out would willingly come over. Yep. And lowering the cost base enough for that to be really successful. So it was a real balancing act. So Qantas, we certainly didn't obsess about them, uh, when I was at Virgin, but you have to be mindful of what they're doing. Mm. And I think one of the things that is important, particularly in international destinations, not so much domestic, because both Virgin and Qantas should be flying pretty much the same places following the money in the, in the domestic uh, world. But having a unique point of difference internationally, I think, is the secret to a successful airline. And so what I mean by that is rather than just do – the same as Qantas and United and Delta and American and doing Sydney, LA. Yep. Try Sydney, Seattle, for example, and you'd get a higher premium. There's a lot of head headquarters there, for example, that have a lot of business travel, cut out the hub, try and own the route. So find some route you own. So that's the path we were on. Now, you also said earlier that you obviously crossed paths with Richard Branson. So one of the great entrepreneurs. Yes. So what were you learning? He just has this belief and aura about him and it comes out in his books. Yeah, but he was close to going down not long ago. And that's part of his strength, right? I mean, it, it, the pandemic hit. He was starting a cruise line. He was launching a hotel brand and he had airlines. So you could not be more at risk than right. those. Heavily exposed. Uh, to his great fortune, he had not long before that floated off a, a large chunk of Virgin Galactic and done quite well out of it. So it sort of insulated him. But his risk-taking is his strength and his backing of people is his strength. And he really has embodied the personality of the Virgin brand. And so, but he's genuine about it. Treat people well and they'll treat the customers well and the shareholders will win. And so that's not lip service from Richard. That's true mm -hmm. and it's there. And, and one thing that in my, and I, I haven't spent a huge amount of time with him. There's been maybe five or six occasions. But his curiosity has never gone. So he asks a lot of questions. And curiosity is one of the values I have at, at PN right now because yeah. it actually it pulls better ideas out of the business. So rather than come in and say, you must do it that way, uh, one of the things that struck me about Richard was his level of curiosity still. Okay. You got one big stakeholder called the government during this time? Where were they? 
you're talking about during the pandemic and Virgin. Yep. Uh, well, they were difficult to deal with. They were confusing. And uh, I did Come on, what does that mean? It's very polite. What does it actually that mean? Is, that is polite. What does it mean? So I, I think- You're running an airline. Tough times. Yeah. All right. You need some clarity, don't you? Australia needs a- a competitive aviation sector. Agreed. And have and we got it or not? We do now. And, and it is a tough market, uh, especially for small newcomers to come into, but there's still a space for that to happen, by the way. Okay. I don't think they had a clear outcome in their mind. Uh, I certainly, I had a lot to do with the Deputy Prime Minister at the time. Nice enough as he is, I'm not sure he really knew what outcome they wanted, nor did the Prime Minister and nor did the Treasurer, and I think they buckled, frankly, to pressure Yep. and from a number of fronts. But what we were asking for at the time was uh, support with a repayable instrument. Now, everyone at the time, not everyone, there was a lot of people that took the outrage position, oh, they're foreign owners, why would we bail out foreign owners? Yep. We were never asking for a bailout. We were asking for a loan to at least give them a fighting chance to pay that loan back because they were all airlines. They were all getting propped up by their governments, by the way. Yep. So many governments did prop up their airlines. Yeah, absolutely. And we were offering two things. It gets repaid with interest, so the Australian taxpayer is not out of, out of money, or you take it uh, in a convertible note as equity and you get something for your money. Now, the way the industry played out after that is there's no repayable money going back to the government for what they gave the aviation sector in that period. And so it was disappointing that they then pivoted, and I think this was a last minute thing, and I can't pinpoint exactly why, but they pivoted to believing there was a market solution. Uh, and to Vaughan Strawbridge's- So right, market solution means what? A market solution was potentially some people influencing the or in the year of government saying, you don't need to step in, let the market sort it out. There's people out there who will jump in. Yeah, take control, right? Take control. And to be honest, that's a brave thing to do for private money, but there's plenty of those out there who do look for opportunities like this to get a bargain basement price in times of uncertainty. Yeah, absolutely. So it's the possibility existed that, that self-interest drove that, approach to government and government bowed to it. Mm. Well, were they worried about setting a precedent, were they? They were definitely worried about setting a precedent and I got that as well. Yeah. Um, but I, I always said if the precedent is that you're happy to assist without putting taxpayer money at risk long term, so it either gets repaid if the, if the yeah. owners of this airline can do that or you end up with a stake in an airline that's actually going to go back into a growing industry again when things stabilise. Yep. It's not the worst thing in the world. So how long were you CEO before COVID kicked off? So I started in late March 2019. Yep. And the first inkling that COVID was an issue was January 2020. All right. So not long. Okay. Talk us through crisis management then in, in this play and- Obviously, every person in the media wants to put their two bobs in as well. So how, how, do you, how do you find that day in and day out and the sort of the wear and tear he gave you? It was intense and it was it was the topical news item Absolutely. of the day. Everyone's and got a view. 
every and in at the best of times, a lot of people n- know or think they know how to run an airline. So free advice has never been short of of coming my way. But this was on steroids, and to watch that publicly play out, and in the fast moving twenty four seven news cycle world we're in now, making sure that you tried to get to my 10,500 staff it was back then before they heard it on the news was a massive challenge. Yep. So that's why communication became, and frequent communication became such an important element of it. But we we were dealing with so much uncertainty uh, and it happened so quickly that you just had to, as I said before, make the decisions as they were in front of you. So yeah. at some point in time early on in the pandemic, there was a view that Yes, it would hurt us domestically, but as an island nation, we're a bit quarantined from the risk. That's right. I remember that, yeah. And pretty quickly after that, the New Zealand government decided to close their borders. Even when they did that, as a more domestic than internationally line, we thought we'll be able to get through this. But then only four or five days later, the government said non-essential domestic travel shouldn't be undertaken either. And the backside just fell out of our bookings and pretty much dried up. So within weeks of COVID hitting, we had grounded pretty much every aircraft in the fleet globally and were operating one flight a day, which is a an ATR prop plane between Melbourne and Sydney, the second biggest biggest air route in the world. Yeah, right. Once a day. Once a day. Yeah. And so crisis management in that sense is – uh, success in any leadership role is about defining success, giving a vision. It's no different in a crisis. So there's a much more urgent burning platform here, but what's important to us? What's success look like? And there were times where success was turning up the next day and still being alive yep. in a business sense. So let's just get to tomorrow. What are we going to do to get to tomorrow? What are we going to do to get to next week? What are we going to do to keep the airline together enough for the sale process to happen? What are we going to do to uh, make sure that, uh, and before JobKeeper, JobKeeper came along, we had to make decisions about standing down our people. So what are we going to do to make sure they can still earn a living? So we're on the phone to the Woolworths and the Coles and the ComBanks of the world and making sure that there was alternatives for them as well. So it was really about making sure that you had a clear definition of what success looks like in a much shorter time frame and go about everything you do every day to make sure that that success is possible. And so it was clear to me pretty quickly that our balance sheet wasn't that strong. When you watch $6 billion worth of revenue disappear almost overnight and your yeah, cost right. base is still pretty fixed, yep. it do- doesn't take long. Qantas had, have s- subsequently said they only had 11 weeks of cash left and they are an airline with one of the strongest balance sheets in the world. Yep. So that that's an indication as to how dramatic the challenge was. So looking back, what could you have done in hindsight better or would you have changed anything? I, I've been asked that before and I think there are some things that if you had the information that you have today back when you made the decision, you would make a different decision. And I remember having to make the Tiger employees redundant and and I think at the same time the international cabin crew, from memory, 
not knowing JobKeeper was coming. And had we've lasted another two weeks in that situation, we probably could have prolonged the option of them staying in the group. Yeah, right. And gotten the JobKeeper at the time. Had we've known JobKeeper was a thing, when we made that decision, it wasn't. And we were, the, the business felt like a bit of a body with gangrene and you had to make sure that you, you saved for the greater good. Yeah, uh, and, cut the limbs off. Yeah, and look, all of the staff, even those affected in Tiger or International, they're incredibly gracious about accepting that reality. But it still didn't, in hindsight, feel great to do that. And had I known back then that that was a possibility, probably wouldn't have gone that hard on that part of the business. But you can't change that. So looking back on that, others will judge how well I or my team did through that process. I know as a team, and I don't talk much about, I haven't been following Virgin much since then. I've been pretty busy otherwise. But we are proud, really proud that in the circumstances, in the depths of a major pandemic that had no real end in sight, we were able to run a very quick sale process and sell a very attractive story to save 6,000 of those 10,500 jobs. And so I'm- But but hold on, just on that point, I know you're going to say that. What choices did you have? Are you talking choices in terms of what else could we do? Yeah. So it sounds like you had to do a sale no matter what. I guess it's getting the best price, is it? Well, what was in my mind, Greg, is what I witnessed and experienced firsthand at ANSET. So- I remember talking to Vaughan Strawbridge and and the broader team at Deloitte who came in and did an outstanding job. And we were talking to the usual suspects, so the Court of Menthers and the McGraw-Nichols, yep. we had PwC and Deloitte in. We chose Deloitte for a number of reasons. One, because in the early days, before we were certain we were going into voluntary administration, we wanted some insolvency advice, but we didn't want to give away the game. And if it's McGraw-Nichol or Court of Mentha, that's all they do. Yeah. So it was easier. So, you, you know, we're using Deloitte for all sorts of things. Right? Yep. So that helped us. That makes sense. Yeah, uh, keep the, the wolves at, at bay a little bit. Yep. But one of the things I said to them is, based on my experience at ANSET, it was a painfully slow, poorly communicated process. And I don't want that. If you want to come in here, because I don't think it helps us save the airline. The longer this goes the more dire it is. So the alternative to selling it was liquidating it. And that was predicted by a lot of people. And so when Vaughan and John and Richard and Sel came in from Deloitte, one of the most emphatic points I made is you will get this gig. And, and in their world, this is a big gig. Yeah, absolutely. Exciting, right? Because yeah. it's, um, it's good for their brand and should be good for their brand. They do a great job. But in their world, they really wanted this. My influence on who it goes to, because it wasn't all my call either, by the way, is on your ability to get in and get out as quickly as you can and get us back to a more bright future. And that is a very quick sale process or a very quick restructuring process. And we had, I believed, created a very good plan for the airline. Without the voluntary administration process that can pretty much reset all the rules, that would have taken about five years to work through. But that plan allowed us to sell quickly. It didn't have to be redone under administration. 
got the process done really quickly. We got through the shortlisting really quickly and it was done and dusted by August. You're in the thick of it and the business is up for sale. What did you learn about leadership then, real leadership? Now, you've had your fun in Queensland Riley, you've had the one big drama, the flights, but this is this is big and this is public. What are you learning? I almost got overwhelmed by the sense of responsibility, to be honest, and but there's a lot of adrenaline that gets you through it and it was the most topical thing. Every morning uh, I'd watch this, the Channel 9 News <laughs> and there'd be another doom and gloom story about how much worse it was and how many more sickness cases there were and how much more negativity there was in the world about it. And so it was incredibly topical. The adrenaline got me through a bit though, but I think the thing I learned was if you are good, uh, good leadership in a crisis does not happen by chance. It's preparation. And the preparation around airlines are really good at crisis management in an operational sense. You rehearse it time and time and time again. Qantas are brilliant at it. Virgin were brilliant at it. And it's just for that black swan operational event. That is translatable to a more broad economic global crisis like this. Not entirely, but it does set you up well. What set us up really well is that we had uh, the radar, which is their version of the PNA, 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 which talked about the things that we prioritise above all else. And it just set the scene for, in that, communication was always important. In that, caring for our people was always a massive factor of that, no matter what. No matter how tough it gets, let's make sure that people are treated with respect. Make sure that safety is always number one. You know, so all of those things that were in our radar, which at the core of it was to be the airline people truly love, right? not just like, truly love. So let's make sure we're that to everyone, even during the crisis, right? So that guided us. We were well prepared. We had a strategy for the airline and we were well trained in crisis management. And in that, we fast-tracked. It was in the pipeline, actually, to go with the meta product, the workplace product. Okay. And we got our IT, we brought the IT guys in, and to their great credit, we said, you haven't got six weeks longer to get this in. We need it in tomorrow. And so we launched it in the middle of the crisis, and everyone joined up to it. And so what I learned is that calmness is very, very important. So if you are the guy, calmness matters a lot, because if I can't hide panic or hide stress, how can I get them to believe that I'm heading us in the right direction? So a lot of energy actually went in to being calm. Even the tone that I talked, making sure I didn't get too animated, was was a big part of that. Making sure that there were key messages, no matter who the audience, that was repetitive throughout the entire thing. Yeah. So even if it was an Alan Jones interview on 2UE or... Uh, the ABC Breakfast Show or Carl Stefanovic or any of those journalists always think your people are watching. So as well as jumping on workplace, weave the messages to your people through the media. So that was very important learning there. And make sure you bring all of the stakeholders on the journey with you. So the amount of phone calls I was making to governments all around the country, the amount of times I spoke to premiers or the head honchos in Canberra was compared to what I do now, I was off the charts. Yeah, right. And that was really important in making sure that you demystified the stuff they were hearing, you know, so if they were hearing stuff that wasn't true, you could you could knock it out pretty quickly. So calmness, clarity, 
definition of success in that circumstance. So the, the time frame of that success period is very short compared to your normal vision, but make sure you're clear with a definition of success. Um, make sure you communicate, 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 even when there's nothing to say. So I know you haven't heard from me for an hour. I've just jumped on to tell you there's not a lot to tell you, um, but the one message I'd like to give right now is that we're still waiting on a response from the federal government on this so that they're not left guessing. And so I've had a lot of people who worked for me at the time saying that they're – and remember, we were talking to 8,000 people who weren't working for us at that time. They were at home, yeah. isolated. And so these stories of their whole family sitting around the live updates uh, were prevalent. And so we, we were helping – reunite and make them feel connected at the same time because they weren't in the workplace. So all of those lessons are, are hard-earned and I'd say to anyone going through a crisis, and Anna Bly taught me this during the floods and she was brilliant and was the sort of gold standard for any leader in the world that wanted to do or wanted to lead through a crisis. She communicated beautifully. She communicated authentically. She did it regularly and said a lot and didn't just say a lot of words. She gave a lot of substance and being as open as I possibly could was a very important part of that process. And there are some things you just wish you could say that you can't without getting yourself in trouble. But I really pushed the boundaries. How did it feel the day you um, finished up? I, I felt I was really disappointed to leave the industry, but I was exhausted. Uh, I threw everything at it and – when I left, I was really at peace about that chapter closing, though, because were you? Yeah, I I was uh, because the I think new owners have a different view of the world, and and I respected that, and they I think it's important the board or owners need to feel like it's their person there, no matter what the background of that person is, no matter how experienced they are, you need to know your person's there, and so. I was at peace with that. Okay. Makes this job, the new job look sound easy then, does it? It's far from easy, but it is not as, it's certainly not as public, which I don't mind at all. The media is useful. The media profile is useful for an airline CEO because it actually helps you sell your brand persona and get your key messages across. But I do like the less, the lack of public interest in what I do. It's not an easy job at all. We are, as I was saying earlier, mm. we are so reliant on third parties that impact the quality of our product that it makes it a very difficult juggling act. If you'd look back at that period of time, as you said, very stressful time and challenging time, the airlines of Australia, where are we? Are we getting the right competition? Are we getting the right service? Uh, you said, I think you made a comment, there's room for some small players as well. Like, what, How do you foresee it? It's a good airline market, and I do think there's room for multiple players. And uh, well, they can make a buck. I, I haven't been watching it closely enough to be completely honest with you, Greg. But they should. They should. It's a the, the Melbourne Sydney route is the second busiest in the entire world. Yeah, and I, I think there is there is room for certainly more than one, and it should be should be competitive. I think what you'll see is, uh, I mean, you've got Bonza in the market now as well. I think yeah. You'll see some unique city pairings come out of it, and I think some will some will work and some won't, but I think that's going to make things 
it gives choice to the consumer, that's for sure. Paul, in all your years of experience, you've had the opportunity to work with some very good people. And there's obviously horses for courses and, and different times. But is there any particular type of individuals or traits that you look for when hiring? It, it often depends on the task that you collectively need to do as a team. But as a rule, I like to surround myself with diversity. Uh, and, and that's just not the normal description of diversity. It's different thinking, different ideas, different experiences, yep. uh, something that can bring maybe a more creative idea into the discussion. I also like people who who respectfully challenge me or are prepared to have a curious debate as opposed to just doing what they think I've told them to do. Because you'll say something like, oh, I reckon we should – I reckon we should do this for our customers and then bang, you know, there's a whole process through the company where there's a, a trail of destruction behind a, something that was a throwaway comment I said oh, yeah. that I'd really prefer someone to go, we could do that, Paul, but this would be the consequence. Why don't we do this thing and get the same outcome? I'd prefer that person to push back. I also look for, really, really look for leadership style. And the fish rots from the head is a phrase that is really apt and as a CEO of multiple different companies, you realise the impact I can have as a CEO, either negatively or positively, just by things that I say or things that I'm seen to do and by the way I lead. And so the standards are set in an organisation by the CEO. Uh, so I also want – and that's passed down through leadership. And so I, I truly believe that we set the example – and there's that old phrase, Greg, lead by example. I don't like it because people have led by example. Often it's a horrible example, and that's t teaching people that to get ahead here, you bully, you backstab, turf protect, not the right message. So I actually look for people who have a really good, genuine, authentic leadership style where I see the exact same version of that person that the people and peers see. And you have to measure oh, consist that. So consistency. Yeah, so I really have learned to dislike in my career situations where I've discovered that I'm seeing a very different version of a person to what the people that they're responsible for leading see. And inevitably, not always, but inevitably, I'm seeing a, a sugar-coated uh, fake version. Yeah. And they're seeing the real person. Sometimes... I'm a bit harder on that person than their people are. I'd prefer it that way. Good. You're putting more time into leading them than managing me. Yep. But I really want to see consistency in the version of that person. Okay. I asked this question a bit, but I don't, very few have spoken to us in the sense of the challenges and, and I guess the stresses you must have gone through. But during that period, out of interest, when do you take time to think? Is it 5 a.m. in the morning before the, you're on the phone to the p.m.? Or like, where, where, when do you do it? you've got to consciously do it. It's easier in normal yeah. situation to prioritise time out. But in that process, I found myself actually getting really overstimulated by my Apple Watch and my phone. It was buzzing relentlessly. Is the adrenaline or what? It was – there is actually something called smartwatch anxiety. And, and I only know this because I went through it and – so I'd be sitting in a meeting focused on one thing and it'd be buzz, buzz, buzz. And it would just make me – I had this mental pile building up in my head that made me think, what else, what else, what else? Uh, 
and it would stress me out instead of focusing on that point in time. So you have to, and I do it fairly well or better now, where you say, I'm just going to shut that time off for meditation or sitting in the sun or contemplation or just staring, getting off the screen. It's a real trap with the iPhones. Turning off all the notifications. I don't religiously wear my Apple Watch anymore. Yeah, right. Uh, I can probably, if I was more techie, I could probably find a way to turn all notifications off so I could use it as a watch, but I don't. Uh, And you do have to prioritize time. So in that period, exercise became massive for me. Uh, And just going for a run or getting on the treadmill, just sweating, Uh, even sitting in a sauna, I found I didn't get to do it very often, but I found that really helped in that process. And so the lesson out of that is, and I came out of it really anxious and it took me a long time to get over that anxiety. And so I'd allowed myself to do what a lot of people do and that is I'll just focus on this as much as I can right now and sort out my health and my mental well-being later. But it's not a good place to let yourself get into you know, no matter how stressful it is, I think you've got to prioritise time and make it a part of your reaction to the crisis as opposed to an interruption. Because if you don't do it, you don't think straight, you don't make good decisions. But doing something like sweating in a sauna or going for a run and sweating, uh, putting your phone away, just letting yourself breathe for a while, those things I'd say in a crisis are massively important. You've also got a, um, a partner, your wife, who's got a fairly active career too, hasn't she? Yeah, she does. Yeah. She's a very successful person in her own right. So how do you balance out all this around the um around the table and catching up with each other? It's one thing keeping fit, one thing getting in mind, but it's also the relationship as well. I think we give each other space. We've always been in senior roles in closely connected industries. Yep. And so throughout the floods, she was the chief of staff for Anna Bly who was leading the flood reaction. So it really is and, and was always about respecting the, the roles they, each other played and making sure that we got the help we needed at the time we needed it. But she's, she's smarter than I'll ever be. So, and I try not to intellectually argue with her. Paul, you're two years, three months, two years, five months in, into the role. What's next, for Paul? I haven't thought that far ahead, uh, Greg. I want not to work this hard in two years from now, two to three years from now. But what that looks like, I'm going to loosely, it's a bit of a cop out, but I'm going to say it looks like freedom. Okay. (laughs) Looks like freedom. So what does freedom look like for me? Um, Allowing me to to make some spontaneous decisions where, and and I do have a number of board seats, which I think will go for many years from here. Uh, but allow me to make the freedom to say, hey, I feel like going to Fiji next week and there's not too much that I need to plan for to do so. Or I want to jump in my car and drive from Brisbane to Melbourne for whatever reason. Uh, freedom is where I want to be in two years' time. Um, I can't have that freedom and a full-time executive role. Uh, so that would flag to you that I'm probably looking at another two years. Uh, and this is not something I haven't already shared with my uh, board or team. Um, that may well change, though, uh, but the, where I'm sitting at right now, uh, my ambition is freedom complemented with some really interesting 
non-executive directorships that I can come back and, and manage the workload on around all that. That ambition of freedom, did that come up one of those early books you, you read many years ago? Probably. It probably did. And I think I've always thought about why is it that I work so hard now? And I have, like everybody who has gone through a journey where you get paid more and more for the next job you do, yep. you have waves of materialism because you think it matters. And it's very easy when you've got a, when you've actually got more than you ever dreamed you would have and what's enough. And the, there's a point where you, you just look at that and go, is it really the things I want or is it the freedom to choose that I want? And it's the latter. And I drive a nice car, of course, but I probably spend a less proportion of my salary on cars than I did 20 years ago. Yeah. Um, far less. It matters not to me uh, what people think about what car I drive. But I also sort of am cautious in explaining that because I have done quite well for what I thought I would do relative to when I was an 18-year-old. And is it easy for me to say that because I've got stuff or not? I don't really know. But I do think freedom is more important than things. Okay. Last question. If you were to look back at that young man who grew up, as you say, in a uh, pretty tough neighbourhood, took a few risks, read a couple of good books, what advice would you give him now? I've answered this question so many times in my life, and I'm not sure I've answered it at the same time twice in a row. What advice would I give? I would say don't sweat the small stuff. Don't overthink things. Stick at the process and the advice that, you know, I give people now I believe is useful advice because I didn't do it properly. So uh, there were times where I didn't focus on the job at hand and think that's the best way. If I do that really well and stand apart, that's the best way to go the next step. I'd be thinking, how do I convince this person above me that I am the best person, even if I'm not doing that job well? Yeah. And that never worked for me. It wasn't until I decided, hey, just do this one thing real well right now that I actually started going up the ladder. I would give that advice to anyone right now. I was watching a little uh, short interview with Barack Obama. Oh, yeah. And he was asked, what do you look for in a really effective executive or advisor? He says, people that can actually get things done. Not, not people that can think and articulate the problem really well or analyze the problem really well, but who, who can actually start and finish something and do that job really well. And I think that's really good advice. And I think the thinking part's massively important, but there's a lot of people who can articulate a problem without executing a solution. And it's the getting it done part that I think is really important. And I'd give that advice to my younger self, stick at things, knowing what I now know, don't spend as much time worrying as I did. On that, Paul, it's been a real pleasure today. Thanks for joining me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Greg. You've been listening to No Limitations. 